Welcome to Dismantle Racism with the Reverend Dr. TLC, where our goal is to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism and create a world where racial equity really is possible for everyone. I am your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC, and today we are going to discuss when murder moves you, igniting your inner activist. So as usual, I want to begin today by simply inviting you to breathe, to breathe in and to breathe out, to breathe in the collective desire to change the world, and to breathe out hate, hostility, and ignorance. Breathe in peace and commitment. Breathe out chaos and complacency. Breathe in light and love for all. Breathe out fear. Breathe in the knowledge that you have everything that you need within you right now to be the change that you actually want to see in the world. Take a deep breath in. Breathe out. And then do a collective sigh. My guest today is a self-described agitator and makes a distinction between being an activist and an agitator. So maybe today we're going to talk about igniting your inner agitator. I love this word because Frederick Douglass once said, Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are people who want crops without plowing the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it may be both, but it must be a struggle. Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did and it never will. So his words of advice to us are to agitate, agitate, agitate. And I am delighted to have such an agitator on the show with me today. With me today is the Reverend Julie Taylor. Reverend Julie Taylor is a Unitarian Universalist minister specializing in critical incident response, community crisis, and pastoral care. Julie is the Senior Director of Contextual Ministry and an affiliate professor of Meadville Lombard Theological School in Chicago. An ordained minister since 2001, Julie has served UU congregations in New York City and St. Louis, as well as volunteered with multiple crisis and disaster response organizations. Agitating, preaching, and working towards dismantling systems of white supremacy are key in Julie's theology and work. Julie, welcome today to my show. I'm so grateful for you and for you being here today. Oh, well, thank you for the invitation. I've been so excited for this conversation, and I just can't wait. I'm so looking forward to talking to you about this. I know I am ready to to dig into this conversation. And really, Julie, the place that I would love to start today with our listening audience is, Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean about dismantling systems of white supremacy being key in your theology? Because Mm -hmm. I know with, with Unitarians in general, that your mission is all about dismantling these systems. But talk to me about your theology around this. Well, and connected, I think, is uh, Unitarian Universalism gets shorthand often just to Unitarian, but these are two traditions, two uh, traditions that came with different theologies, the Unitarian side around uh, uh, the unity of God and then uh, being one God rather than than a Trinitarian, but the Universalist side had to do with universal salvation, that Mm. all, uh, no one can be separated from God, that there's Mm. nothing that we can do. 
uh, to be separated from the love of God. So this one God, no hell, essentially is the shorthand for the Unitarian Universalist side. And the Universalist side, I think, really is a big part of the driving for me around my theology in connecting to the dismantling of, of white supremacy. So uh, well, I, I want to step back a little bit, and this will be a little Unitarian Universalist or UU in short um, background for those that maybe aren't familiar with us. And uh, uh, we have principles and we're a, we're a covenantal faith. We don't have a creed that everyone uh, adheres to or has to agree on. We're covenantal, so we agree to behave in particular ways uh, within community. So we're also relational. And uh, currently we have seven principles and we're working on adding an eighth right now. Uh, the se the, so the seventh principle, and this is the one that kind of gets me uh, going on this, uh, is the respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this idea that there is, we, we are all connected. There's no, there's nothing that can't happen over there that happens to you. That's not going to connect to me. There's nothing that I do. That's it's all part of this. So mm -hmm. that's the first place we start. And when I started really doing my own work and my own theological and my own deepening and my, all of the spiritual work that I was doing, it really became clear for me that that white supremacy is also an interdependent web that I that lays on top of the interdependent web of all life of which we mm -hmm. are a part. Mm. Now, 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 how did you come to that? To to to, I mean, I get it, but but that's a lot of introspection. There's, you know, some of it comes from, some of it comes from, you know, from reading from being in conversation, being relationship, and also being engaged in the world and, and paying attention to what's happening. At Just at some point that image came up and I went, wait a second, the white supremacy is also this interdependent web that is connected to everything, but it's not the same thing as the interdependent web of life. It's laying on top of mm -hmm. the web of life, which means that that makes it really hard to pull apart things that we exist on top of. We so I, 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 I'm, I'm like, so, so this is probably nothing that you and I even talked about beforehand, but now it's really interesting to get into this because one of the things that I find, particularly if we're talking about um, religion, for instance, and you've identified white supremacy as being an overlay of, 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 of what we deal with from a religious perspective, a spiritual perspective, all of that. Talk to me about how folks who are deeply engaged in religion and theology, how they can come to this place where you are with, with understanding how white. I know it's a tough question, but <laughs> what I find is particularly if, if we're going to be blunt here, I find that folks have used the Bible in a way yep. to continue to dis, to to oppress oppress people and then folks are often fearful and by folks I mean white folks are yep. often fearful with addressing this issue of racism but you're 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 saying it's so interwoven how can yep. we not address it is what I hear you saying I well yes so I think it is so interwoven that we must address it how could we not and yet it's so interwoven for white people it means that we can pretend that it's not there Mm. right we we don't we if we if we're not if we don't force ourselves or if we're not forced to right just right in, in frederick Douglass, it's nothing's going to happen nothing's going to happen without being pushed nothing is going to change right exactly. so white people have to my experience around this uh and certainly reading uh and again experience watching what's happening if, if white people aren't pushed on this if we don't push ourselves on it we can ignore that top layer and just pretend, oh no, this is just so, this layer. And so that's something that often happens. And what I love about this discussion is, is that you started from this perspective of UUA, right? And what your principles are. So supposedly other religious groups, Christians, have principles that they are guided by as well. And what, what I heard you say was, as I looked at our principles, I also did my own deep work on it that opened you up a bit. And I find that sometimes 
uh, a couple of things, and I'm, I'm we'll be having a couple of pastors on later on in in, in the the season here, who white pastors talking about actually the failure of white pastors to really discuss racism in church because yeah. folks want to go to church and they want to feel good when they want That's to. That's right. They really don't want to deal with the principles that they say that they believe in. That's and right. So it, it sounds like to me that from your work, your work on yourself, first of all, and your understanding of who you are as a spiritual being is mm-hmm. what guides your theology and what opened you up. Yes. Study. Yes. It's, it's a place for strength. It's a place for vulnerability. It's a place for growth. It's a place for shelter. It's all, it has to be all those things. Were you afraid at first when you started to explore this, to allow yourself to go there to say, what am I going to uncover? Yes. Yes. And part of it is because I know what is likely to be there. Right. So I've, so I'm going to give a little secret here, right? I'll give a little secret. I've been planning to preach on it. I haven't figured out how to do it. So I'm now going to, somebody else will probably preach on it better than ever could. So it probably belongs somewhere else. You know, the old, you know, that there's a, a children's story from when I was a kid, one of those little golden books, and it's a Sesame Street one. Uh, it's Grover. And it's the monster at the end of this book. Do you know yeah. that story? I don't. And he's, oh, okay. The monster at the end of this book. So Grover and each page says, there's a monster at the end of this book. Let's build a wall. Don't turn the page. And he's talking to the reader. Don't turn the page because there's a monster at the end of this book. That's the title of the book. There's a monster. And you turn the page and he says, you're really strong. Don't turn the page. And he keeps saying, don't turn the page. Don't turn the page. But of course, as a little kid, you're like, turn the page, turn the page. And you get to the end and the monster at the end of the book is him. He's a monster and he's been afraid of himself. He didn't know that he was going to find himself as being the monster at the end of the book. And he goes, oh, the monster is me, lovable old Grover. So I, that book for me is about like white people. Like we are the monster at the end of this book. Now, what are we going to do about it when we turn to the page and go, it's me. I am lovable me. And I'm still the monster at the end of this book. Part oh two my gosh, that is really, I, I, I have like chills right now. I, I can't, I'm ready for you to preach that sermon. Wow. Maybe I did. Maybe I just wow. did. Maybe that's it. <laughs> I, I, I think you did. I really and truly have chills right now. And 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 I don't know, it, 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 it'll play around in my head. I love what you just said, though, is the both and. It's not an either or. That we can be lovable, but we can also still be monsters. And a part of what happens when I do the work that I do on uh, dismantling racism in my programs is that people like but I'm a good person I'm a good person how often do we hear I'm a good person that's right we can be a good person and we can also manifest behaviors within us that we need to get rid of and if we don't become conscious of those things like you've done then we don't work on those things and that doesn't mean that we get to this place where we're perfect it just means that we continue to work well, and you know, uh, we'll talk about this in the next segment. I know one of my one of my dear friends and one of my uh, accountability buddies. He always says, "As white people, we're never going to do no harm. My goal always has to be, how can I do less harm? Mm. How can I do less harm?" Wow, wow. Well, you know what? That's a good place for us to take a break. Uh, we are going to be right back with the Reverend Julie Taylor. This is Dismantle Racism with the Reverend Dr. TLC, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. 
I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Did you know that nearly one in five adults in the U.S. battles mental illness? Hi, my name is Albert Dabba. I'm the host of the show Extra Inning. Extra Innings, I discuss the topics of wellness, mental health, and the experience of surviving multiple suicides within my family. Listen live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern to Extra Innings for discussions with sports figures, artists, mental health professionals, many others. That's Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. are back with Dismantle Racism with the Reverend Dr. TLC and today's guest, the Reverend Julie Taylor. Right before the break, we were really talking about the personal work that you've done spiritually to engage in this work of really dismantling white supremacy in all of its forms. And one of the things that I find particularly um, over the last year, year and a half, I would say, is that people want to just rush to jump in, to become an agitator or feel like they're ready to become a part of dismantling racism. And of course, I would love that, uh, that, that, that everybody could just jump in and be ready to go. But one of the things I really talk a lot about is the self-transformation, the work that you must do. So you talked before the break about the spiritual work that you were doing, like when you began your spiritual journey, maybe to become a minister at some point, you also had to dig a little bit deeper. Talk to us a little bit more about some of the other personal work that you might have have had to do yourself around your own white supremacy or to do no harm, as you said, right before the break. Um, you're muted, actually. So take a oh, yep, gotcha. Uh, or less harm as a white person, right? Less, less harm. I can I can do I can do less harm. Or I can work to do less harm. Well, I think for me, it's my journey goes in a lot of different directions. Uh, uh, as a white person, I think the one of the initial things is to recognize difference. Uh, I have been conditioned. Uh, certainly as a white person in, in this country at, at a particular time growing up in the 70s and 80s to minimize difference, to say, hey, listen, we're all human beings. We're all people here. And so, and for white people, that really winds up being unconsciously, you know, every everybody's just like us, right? We all have, the, we all start from the same place. Exactly, exactly, yes. And And so- you know, I, I had an argument with a family member now going back uh, 2014, 2015, somewhere in there, and uh, who said, uh, who comes from a much more conservative, uh, theological, shall I say, conservative uh, theological background than I do, who said, well, you know, what you're doing, what you're doing is, uh, is just causing more problems because God created us all and we're, God created us all equal. And I just wrote back and said, that's true, but we don't treat each other as equal. So that's what we got to deal with we're right. dealing with each other and how we're doing this, right? Right. And we treat each other. There are differences in the systems. There's differences in how it's unconscious for white folks. It's certainly unconscious, uh, I would say, in this country. And I, yeah, I'm going to make that generalization. I'm going to make that generalization because we are, um, we're brought up to not even recognize ourselves as a race. And I'm not the first person to say that. I'm not the first person to do that. As a young child, I had some understanding of myself as being white based on just some experiences that I had. And that has, ne that has never left me. That was always there. I didn't know what it meant or how to put things together around that later. I would, I would, but I think that 
very initial early experience, uh, that seed that was planted was part of allowing me to make some big shifts when, when they did. And so I think part of this is education, right? Um, and I know like within my tradition and, and with others, I, I think even just in the bigger world, a lot of white people, liberal progressive white people that want to see this change have been thinking about how do we educate about dismantling racism for you know, a long time, 50, 60 years, how, how do we, and education is always, if we know more, we'll be able to change it. If we just think about it more, we'll be able to change it. And I think there's, there is a part, there's an important part that education plays, but you mentioned the word already, just as we started the segment, education alone, I don't believe is transformative. It, it, it absolutely not. Cause I, I just want to pause you for a second because you just said something really, really important. You first got to recognize that that you're white and that white is the backdrop of every single thing that we do. That white is the standard. And it was so beautifully said how you said, well, we don't recognize ourselves as a race. I can't tell you how many times when I've been doing training, if I ask people, what are some of the characteristics of being white? They don't know. They can tell you what it means to be black or Latina, or all these other things, because it's the other. And so that is part of the waking up and the consciousness and doing the work. And so, so tell me a little bit more about what you did to engage in this process. Well, and it's, it's take, it's been over a number of years. Uh, I do want to say though, right before we move on too much further, so that education being an important piece of it, but that's not transformative. It's the, I believe that, you know, this racism, White supremacy is a spiritual disease, and so it's going to it requires that spiritual work for the transformation. Education has a piece, right? There's a lot of pieces, but without that, I don't know that the transformation happens. At least that's my take on it. However, people determine spirituality and religion, however they figure how to make meaning and how their life is going to make meaning, that that's the piece that's key. At any rate, I have to to just interrupt (laughs) you for a second because if you we're in some church traditions right now. I'd be saying, Julie, you better preach, right? <laughs> you, you're really speaking uh, my language and I and mm. and speaking words that are really powerful. I, to, to, because to say that it this really takes a spiritual transformation is really a spiritual disease is what racism is is just really really powerful. So continue though with yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Before, uh, we get I mean, because honestly, right. There's smart people have been working on this a long time. If we could have thought our way out of this, somebody would have figured out how to think about it. Because really good, int- I'm not disparaging any of it. If that was if that was all it took, mm-hmm. I think we would have been there. It's right. more than that. But most it's people more are scared that. to do the personal work. Yeah. Well, it is look, scary. Yeah, of course. T- talk to me about some of your fears because you've been at, like you said, you've been at this a long time. So what well, were your fears? You know. As long as, you know, I mean, the fears of, again, of of recognizing my complicity and having to own up to where I do, where where that, where privilege has, does come to me without me recognizing it. And I come from pretty poor background and that, that figuring out that gap of, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, you know, I know, I know what government cheese tastes like, right? I know what this is. I don't have privilege, right? That piece. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait a minute. That's true. And yes, Julie, I love that because that's one of the things that I have to battle sometimes in training. So like, no, 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 I was poor. And I said, yes, but at any time you, you put on different clothing and you walk into a space, they're not going to judge you based on the color of your skin. Now I will also say this, and this was something that, that a white friend, uh, actually taught me or you know I hadn't really thought about it from this perspective so I know that poor white people are treated horribly in this country horribly and I know that there's a name that folks call poor white folks and what she schooled me on was she said I hate the name and forgive me for using it but for the context of this she said I hate the name poor white trash Mm -hmm. She said, because in that is already racism, because you assume that Mm. everybody else is trash and that you're the worst of worst because you're poor and you're white and you shouldn't be. And so she even made me to just think about the racism 
of the word itself. Yeah. And so I do get what you're saying. There has to be this distinction and folks have to realize that first of all, there's no hierarchy on, on uh, oppression. So when we talk about racism, it does not mean that other groups of people don't experience oppression. It just means that we need to deal with the racism and also the intersectionality of that as yeah. well. Um, you know, I, I want to just talk about something, and I know that there was a lot more that you could say around that personal transformation, but, but I want to make sure that we get into this. You um, have been doing this work of crisis intervention now for about 20 years or so, and in our conversation before the show, you told me that when Trayvon Martin was murdered, that you had an awakening around the crisis responses and intervention that you do, that you had this awakening where your lens really opened up and you were able to see the trauma that was associated with um, really the murder of Trayvon Martin was very similar to the work that you do around disaster. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, a little bit. Some of it was unconscious and it just, a shift happened and, and, and I recognized the shift that happened. So I don't know that I have a lot of details about what went into it, except that I think um, uh, it, it takes what it takes, right? All the things that came up to were finally that, that shift. So, uh, you know, I was in New York City for 25 years. Um, Sean Bell was murdered, right? Amadou Diallo, uh, like there was all sorts of things that happened, but for some reason, yeah, when Trayvon Martin was murdered, um, I, I'd been doing crisis intervention work uh, at that point. Well, since 2001, uh, I was a chaplain on site at World Trade Center and spent six months uh, doing shifts there and had since done, I mean, I'm, I'm a national subject matter expert on crisis intervention and spiritual care. There was something about that particular response in the way that all of a sudden I went, yeah, that my lens kind of opened and fine-tuned at the same time and went, wow, oh, there are so many pieces around, let me, and it just kind of hit and came into really clear focus that the work that I had been doing here helped me not understand, but get a clearer focus in what was happening and allowed me to focus in and go, I need to start naming things. I need to start talking about this. And so uh, on, I think it was March, it was end of March, 25th, 26th, something, 2012 uh, in New York, uh, there was a call out for people to wear a hoodie when you preach. Yes. And so I, I was supposed to already be in the pulpit. I was pregnant at the time. Uh, my son was, I didn't know we were, didn't know we were going to have a son, uh, but he was going to be born in about a month and a half. I was really pregnant and uh, preaching in a hoodie <laughs> and a robe. was a hot. Oh no, you were supposed <laughs> to take right? the robe off. <laughs> I had the hood under, you know, had the hood up over. With, yeah. with my robe, right? And my vestments. And I preached and it was, the, the sermon was called wearing a hoodie. And mm. I, you know, so the night before I had to throw away the old sermon and write this one. And really, you know, some of what I talked about is I named myself as being racist, mm. not intentionally, not wanting to be, but this unconscious. And I have to say this out loud. I also talked about, we didn't, again, we knew we were having a white child. So I had to name what, what do I, what do I have to do now so that I can lessen the amount of unconscious racism and white supremacy that I will unknowingly give and bring upon this white child that I'm about to bring in the world that we're about to raise. And how do we start, how do we start intervening in that? And the, and the way to do it is we need to be willing to be bold and be uncomfortable as white people, be uncomfortable do the work that we have to do because the only way this changes is if I make my changes and I then start finding out where those changes can reverberate within, within my, whatever I have control over. For me, it's me, it's my kids, it's the little circles that I'm in. I love it. Now we do have to take a, a break, but when we come back, I want to talk just for a bit, because you've mentioned it several times, uh, complicity and ways in which you show up. And some people out there might be saying, well, I don't know, how am I being racist? Right, what right. are some ways that I'm complicit? So if you could give some examples of that when we come back, uh, I would really, really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. This is Dismantle Racism with the Reverend Dr. TLC and my guest today, Reverend Julie Taylor. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, 
and power. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy, and I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. back with Dismantle Racism with the Reverend Dr. TLC. My guest today, Reverend Julie Taylor, is a crisis um, response agitator, really. And we were just talking right before the break about some ways in which white people are complicit with racism. And I would love for you to just share a few examples for those listeners who are out there saying, I don't get it. I don't understand. What do you mean by that? Well, some things we have control over and don't realize we do, and some things we don't have control over, right? One of the ways that we're complicit uh, and that we don't have control over is things like when I bought my house, when we bought our house, knowing that we're going to automatically be offered different lines of credit, different terms, that our, our credit is different. That's one of the things that I don't have any control over, but I'm that's that do less harm. I can't do no harm because I can't do anything about that one at the moment. At least I don't know how I would do anything about that. that but so less harm where I can do something. So that would be one example um, that just by me being white, other things come to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, other ways to be complicit is uh, being afraid to speak up when you know that you need to, because you don't know if you're going to lose a friend or you don't know if you're, you're going to be embarrassed or maybe you don't know what to say or that you don't want to make things worse. And so you don't say anything when you know you should. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. that would be one I would say for people people? who want to you know so how do you help people to move beyond Mm. that fear so one of the ways I think it's important some of the things that we need as and again I'm only going to I'm I I hope it's been clear I'm only speaking as a white person really more to the to white folks in this I think it's important for us to have our own accountability groups uh, the, and some of them need to be caucus based. They should be white based. And wherever your relationships are, then then you you learn where that can 
work and not just be specific within caucus white space. But I think that's important to test things out, to practice things there. You know um, what I think the irony of this is? I think that's so, so great. We, the, like we fought to get rid of like the white only groups, but this is a place where you need to have a, a white only group. There right. are times and spaces where we need to be able to process yeah. the things that right relevant for us. Right? Well, and there's a difference between segregated and segregated space and caucusing space. Yes. And yes. that's a really important distinction. Just because they look the same doesn't mean that that's the intention. I think that's important. Yes. So, and then there's, there's other things that we can do. I want to lift up, uh, connected to the school where I teach, Meadville Lombard Theological School, there's the FOS Collaborative, and I can share this link here later. There's actually um, work that they do that anybody can become a part of called Beloved Conversations. Yes. And if you know about Beloved Conversations, that work that happens both within a, a mixed group, but also caucusing group to be able to practice and work on, well, what would that be? What is it that I'm afraid of? What is it? Okay. How can I take my little steps or make my little move, have my little conversation in all the different ways I could be? We have to start within a little bit of a safe space to work into more uncomfortable that then can work into bold. Yes. In addition to doing the spiritual work that girds us to be able to do all those pieces. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you, because I want to make sure that we talk about this. So I know that you were in St. Louis during the time that Michael Brown was murdered. I'd like you, if you could, to just talk a little bit about your experience during that time and what it was like for you uh, as a crisis responder, um, also as an agitator during that time. There are pictures of you at, at, at marches. So, yeah. um, and not every person will be out and marching and not every person will be an agitator in the way that you are, but I'd love yeah. to hear what some of your experiences were. Yeah. So, uh, we had moved from New York City to St. Louis in 2012, uh, at the beginning of August 2012. So we had uh, and had a brand new, <laughs> brand new little one at that point. So uh, when August of 2014 rolled around, uh, we were still pretty new. I had not made, a, you know, with a with a brand new baby, I hadn't made a whole lot of new friends and hadn't really been part of the community. My relationships were not super wide at that point, mm -hmm. but I was connected uh, through uh, where my where my wife was employed. I was connected to uh, at a, at the at the Eden uh, Seminary. There I was connected to uh, a number. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where being connected to one person winds you finding out right. meaning. And so, right. and because of the nature of the work that I've been doing so long with crisis intervention, when Mike, when Mike was killed, all of a sudden a number of, of ministers uh, had come together and they actually went to the campus to meet because a lot of them were alum, Tracy Blackman and uh, uh, Susan Talvey was, you know, who's the rabbi there. And, uh, oh, I mean, there are just a whole bunch of people there, but seven, eight people that that met. And I got invited because of, of the crisis work by the mm -hmm. by the dean to say, hey, this seems like it's a crisis, maybe. And I was very smart enough to know to go to that meeting and shut up because I'm not I, from that. I'm not from that community. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not from that community. I, I, I love I want to just pause there for a second, because I think it's so important for you to say to 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 know when to be quiet and just to listen, because often what happens is, is that people come in and they want to do all the talking because they think they know how to do X, Y, and Z. And you clearly had experience in crisis response. So you know how to do that. But you said, in this case, I need to listen. I don't need to show up and be, because that's a privileged thing too, that happens yeah. sometimes, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had experience running like pieces from national type, like stuff. And it was real clear that I don't know this town and I don't know these relationships and they don't know me. And the mm -hmm. only thing for me to do, I mean, I, I kind of borrowed the credibility because it was given to me by being invited by a person that they respected to come to this meeting, you know, Starsky Wilson's different ones that were there. And so, but I listened and, uh, what wound up initial my initial piece was right away. Uh, they said we need we need ministers in camp at the Canfield apartments right there in Canfield. Be um, there's food being distributed because you know they the city shut down the route to be able to, for buses to go through the the street the main street Florissant West Florissant was shut down so people couldn't get to work. 
buses weren't working, school got postponed, people needed food, they needed diapers, they, they needed stuff. So there was handing out of, of food and all. So they needed ministers. Well, that's kind of what I do is show up in crisis situations and I, you know, work people. So I was like, all right, put me on the list. And so I started within the first couple of days, I was there during the, during the daytime shifts, talking with people, but right. It's not like that kind of work for a minister is not like, I'm going to sit, we're not gonna have a Bible study. We're not going to sit down. Maybe there's a little prayer, but you know what it is? It's putting toilet paper into bags and handing it to people. That's what we do. But here's, here's the other thing is it's showing up and doing what you can do in the moment. And that's That's part of what dismantling racism is about. It is saying, I go, going back to what you said about being interconnected is that we are all interconnected and I'm not going to look out and say, Oh, look at what's happening to those poor people over there. I'm going to be a part of it. And I'm sure tensions were high. As a matter of fact, I know they were high during that time. There might've been a sense of fear and danger during that time. Uh, there was a lot of lot going on with the community versus police officers, all of that. Yeah. So tell me, tell me more about, um, well, so the daytimes going out and, you know, with the food and all of that, it's, but it's also important, right. As a minister and as, as a white minister to, again, just to be there holding that space as part of as part of the community rather than um, as part of the helping and serving community rather than some other place at any rate. Um, so that was the daytime. And then Reverend Sekou, who people, uh, a lot of people know, we, w- we were at seminary together. He gave me a call. He's from St. Louis. He gave me a call, said, I'm coming in. I need a ride from the airport. And I went and picked him up. And that after that first night there, he called me and he said, you got to come out at night. It's messed up here at night and it's different. And so then I went at night with again within the first maybe three four days and that's when the tanks came out that weren't real t- right that's where they're you know yeah. technically they're not tanks but that's when things shifted and that's when uh i found myself working with whoever was there with seku and seku and i just worked through, went through the crowd and were there as protesters but also as as a spiritual presence Mm-hmm. in those moments mm-hmm. as part of, right? So I would call myself, a, like, I'm not, a, we talked about this, I'm not an activist, I'm not an organizer, but I've been a protester, I'm an agitator. And in those moments, as a spiritual leader saying, no, I'm walking with these people because what happened is not right. And this is mourning. That first week, it was about pe- the community mourning and needing a place to mourn. And and the authorities saying, you're not not here, you can't mourn. And saying, no, we're not going home. We have the right to mourn. This is not right. And a justice movement that has changed this country came out of those young people who said, we give a damn about our friend and we're not going home. We're here to mourn and to lament this unneeded, unaccounted for, unfair, unjust death. I, I love it. You know, it, we, we have to take a break. And, and I'm so sorry that we do, because I what you're saying is so powerful that show up. That's really what we're telling our audience to do is to show up and to stand with people, get outside of your own fear and say, let me look and listen and learn. And so all of those are things that folks um can do in order to participate in this dismantling racism. Everybody won't be a Julie Taylor or a Terrilyn Curry Avery who are out and about doing things the way we do. But what you're saying is stand in solidarity. What I also uh, heard in all of this was that your ability to not judge people in those situations, but to observe. And in your observation, you were able to see the deep hurt that was there. Mm. And a lot of times people don't see that. They say, why are they tearing up their Mm. city? Why are doing this and that? Folks are not able to see the anger. And actually in in my upcoming book on dismantling racism, I talk about lamenting Mm. because I said it is so important for us to lament and to mourn the chaos and the destruction that we see in this world. And until we can do that, and until we can be in touch with those feelings, we cannot move 
towards healing. We're going to take a quick break. This is Dismantle Racism with the Reverend Dr. TLC. We'll be back with Reverend Julie Taylor. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Julie, I am so delighted that you've spent time with us today. And in our last few minutes, I really want to just, um, you know, when I think about what you described as happening in St. Louis with Mike Brown, and then I think about what happened with George Floyd in 2020, talk to me a little bit about maybe the your thoughts and your feelings about whether the world has changed or was it like reliving it all over again for you? Because oftentimes one of the things I deal with in my classes is people feel like it's hopeless. Yeah. And that's white and black folks, but particularly uh, when we look at it and go, wow, is it ever going to change? So talk a little bit about those feelings and similarities. Well, there definitely were similarities. I mean, some of, some of the, I feel like the police departments in St. Louis and St. Louis County and first all the little towns wound, I don't know if they did or not, but it feels like they gave some kind of masterclass to a lot of other law enforcement around the country because a lot of the same tactics have mm-hmm. been worked on and perfected and that were, that were utilized um, in 2014, 2015 in, in Ferguson and St. Louis. So there was like, Ooh, you can kind of see that coming. Oh yeah, here they go. Um, but I, in terms of what what's changing and what's not, things are changing. And to, but this is only a piece of it, right? It's only the beginning. It's not all of the work. It's a piece. And we, you know, this is this is where I have to do my work. We all have to do our individual work, and we have to push for bigger systems change. If you know systems theory, the sy- systems are designed to stay the same. And the amount of energy it takes to change that is constant and ongoing. And that's part of the hard thing, I think. Um, again, not speaking for myself as a white person, I'm not gonna see the end of this change in my lifetime, but mm-hmm. it's my responsibility to do my part. And but it's my the, responsibility to help my kids learn that they've got to do their part. And, for, and exactly. it's like, 
that's it, this generational piece, right? Yeah. You know what what I what I appreciate you saying, and we keep going back to this. So anybody who listens to the show know, knows it's the self-transformation. Because in order for you to keep pushing for those systems to change, you've got to believe this down in your soul and spirit that it needs changing. If you're only in it for the moment, like I've seen a lot of white people do after George Floyd was murdered, they're like, oh yes, we're gonna do this, we're gonna change, blah, blah, blah. And now Yes. The interest isn't there anymore. The, the other thing that I think is really valuable about what you are saying is you've painted just a small picture because we could have spent the whole time talking about, you know, Mike Brown's mm. death Absolutely. and what St. Louis was like. You actually painted a picture, a small one today of what it was like to shut down grocery stores, to shut down all of this. And so folks need to understand that when you're cutting off people's food supplies and their livelihood because they couldn't go to work, that, of course, it, there's a snowball effect to that. And so when we're sitting on the outside judging what other people are doing, we need to learn to ask the questions. And my question is always, why? Why did that happen? Mm-hmm. Instead of doing the judgment piece around mm-hmm. it. And so I, I, I do, like you, believe that there is hope. And so I'm glad that 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 you're saying that there have been changes critical to what you also said was this piece about what are we telling our young people Mm. and what are they experiencing? And as a mom, we always have. I know my kids are are, well, one is no longer a teenager, but um, but they had very different thoughts about what we should be doing after George. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, well, and you know, to some, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm old now, right? Like, to some degree, it's, it's part of my job at this point is to support. Uh, I, I, I'm not a front lines protester like I was then. Some of that has to do with my family situation and the kids. And I know, I know, at one point um, in the early, in the early days, within August and September, my wife actually got on Twitter, got a Twitter account to be able to check and see if I, I mean, this is out of her mouth to check and see if I was still alive, if I was still tweeting. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was very difficult on my family. And now that they're a little older, I have to make adjustments and figure things, but they're like you said that what are the other things you can do? So other ways that I am constantly paying attention to how to dismantle white supremacy. I'm a professor. It comes into how, how, how I choose what my syllabus is. Yes. Who's coming into my courses. Right. It comes into what television shows that our kids watch, the kinds of, you know, the kinds of storybooks that we bring in that we have to we have to consciously look and there's more available than there were. And the Internet does help with this, uh, with bookstores and whatnot and and articles. But we have to look for books that are not just white people in all the kids books. Mm hmm. mm -hmm. Right. That's because we have to become conscious of what the tapestry is, though, because the tapestry. If you're used to the tapestry being all white, then you're not going to look for those other books. I want to ask you one other quick question before we have to get ready to go. This is, you do such important work around crisis intervention and responding to crises and also in your work as an agitator and as an ally. And so how can people support you in this work? Because I think Mm -hmm. allies need to be supported because- you, you, you just talked, we talked about the fear and we talked about the danger. We talked about all those things. So how can people support? Well, now, see, you didn't set me up for that question. I haven't thought about that one. Uh, I, I, I think, I, you know, I, I think we have to support one another. I, have to, I think we have to support one another that way and recognize that these are mutual. This has to be mutual. This has to be um, opportunities. Uh, Right. Perfectionism is one of those hallmarks of white supremacy that messes a whole lot of things up. And so for us really working on uh, we're going to mess up. How can I do less? But I'm going to mess up when I mess up. Uh, Leslie Mack had a great image uh, uh, around apologies, six steps of apologies. Right. How, what are you going to do to get back in the right relationship if you can? And if you can't, how how can you uh, do that work? It's really important for all of us to pay attention to that and, to, and that grace. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that. And I, and I do want you to, now that I didn't set you up for the question, think about <laughs> you need to support you because I think it's so important that if people are going to stand up 
that they do not feel alone. And, and that's what I love about when you said caucusing is yeah. because it's a way of knowing that there are people out there. Listen, we have run out of time today. We've got to have you back, Reverend Julie, but tell folks how they might be able to uh, get in touch with you or to learn more about the work you do. Um, oh. Yeah. Well, I'm a little bit on Twitter at Unruly Rev, U-N-R-U-L-Y-R-E-V. Uh, I've, I'm slowly getting back into Twitter. I haven't figured out all the other ones because I'm old. Uh, and I'm at uh, I'm at Meadville Lombard, so you can find Meadville Lombard Theological School as well, and all the great work being done there. Thank you so much, Reverend Julie. I'm going to have to have you back again because I feel like we love only scratched the surface. I'd love if, it. If you, the listening audience, would like to know more about ways to dismantle racism and the courses I offer, please do visit SacredIntelligence.com to learn more. Again, I want to thank the Reverend Julie Taylor for being with me today. And I want to invite you to stay tuned to the Conscious Consultant Hour with Sam Leibowitz. We are going to end today with Reverend Julie offering us just a brief blessing. So I wrote this piece in uh, January of 2016. It's Love Looks Different. And it's a, it's a new riff on 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Love looks different. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it is not proud, love bears all things. We know these words, use these words when we're late, where we are relating one person to another. But love looks different when we relate systems. Love looks different in the face of injustice. It is then that love is resistant, love is defiant, love is not backing down, it's staying in the streets. Love is holding each other and ourselves to accountability. Love is challenging because none of us is free until all of us is free. Love is protest. Protest is love. Love bears all things. Thank you, Rev. Thank you, Reverend Julie. Bye for now. We'll see you all next time on Dismantle Racism with the Reverend Dr. TLC. at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2 They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you listeners looking to boost your business. Why not advertise on Talk Radio NYC with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply send us a message on our website, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. 
You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower.